God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for all you've done in our lives. God, I just, uh, I just am so thankful for you this morning. I'm so thankful for you and everything that you've blessed us with. God, the ways in which you've spoken to each and every one of us. God, I just pray that you will continue. I pray that this morning that you would uh, speak through me. Would the words that come out of my mouth be your words for your people uh, on your day, God? There's, there's no other reason to be here. God, we are here for you and for no other reason. God, I just pray that you would uh, just bless this time. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Would we hear your word in uh, maybe a familiar story, but in a new way this morning? God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, uh, we are uh, continuing our Gospel Above All series. Uh, this is week five of our Gospel Above All series. Our small group's been going through it as well. And uh, I would encourage you, even if you have not been to a small group yet, it's not too late. You can still come uh, and enjoy the time together, enjoy the small group. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. The discussions have been really good. I know on Tuesdays, on Thursdays, the same. And so I encourage you, if you haven't yet joined a small group, it's not too late, join a small group. But we've been kind of unpacking this whole idea of putting the gospel first and foremost in our lives. It kind of comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's saying, uh, I, I pass on to you what is of first importance, that Jesus uh, died according to the scriptures, and that he was uh, raised according to the scriptures. This is First Corinthians 15. He's telling this church in Corinth, this is what is the most important. This is of first importance, that Jesus died, that he was raised again. Uh, this is the gospel. The gospel is of first importance in our lives. And so over the last four weeks, we've been kind of unpacking what this means. The first three weeks, really just talking about what the gospel does in our life. Right, the first one, we, we, the gospel saves us. Uh, this God, who is the creator, just, holy God, sees you and I in our sin and sends his son so that we might be restored to him forever. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that saves us. It's not only the gospel that saves us, though. It's also the gospel that transforms us. Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are not the ones who renew our minds. God is the one who renews our mind. This is the gospel. We're being transformed by the gospel into people who look a whole lot more like Jesus. Right, we are being transformed each and every day. And we do this uh, week three. The, the gospel is not just what saves us and transforms us, but the gospel is what sends us. I think you could also say the gospel is what empowers us this week. We looked at the Great Commission, and we see this command to go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is a, kind of the four-step, go, make disciples, baptize, teach. But on either side of that, we have the power of God on our side. All right, therefore, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That go, make disciples, baptize, teach. On the back half of that, I'm with you always the very end of the age. All right, we have the, the power of God sandwiching us. We have the, the authority of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit always with us that are pushing us on this mission to go. We are sent by the gospel. Last week, we began kind of this journey of getting a little more specific, kind of diving more into the weeds of what it looks like to be sent. We talked about evangelism or gospel urgency, as we were talking, calling it last week, that we are commanded to go and to share the gospel that we, our mouths and our feet and our hands are the ones that are to take the gospel into the world. This is a great, uh, it's a responsibility. Uh, but last week, I, I just challenge you, who is your one? 
Who's the one that you're going to be praying for? Who is the one that you would love to see come to Jesus in a powerful way? Who is your one? And I've been praying along with you for my one. I've been praying for your ones uh, that we would begin to see uh, change in those ones. Uh, I cannot wait for the day that I get to baptize someone's one. Uh, because we won them. You know? I- I'm so excited for that day. I just want you to keep praying and keep thinking about your one. Uh, and this is, this is where we're going to begin our journey again today because we're, we're going from this to kind of another uh, aspect, this attitude, this gospel attitude of grace. The gospel attitude of grace is where we're going to be today. Uh, and when I think of grace, There's one story in particularly in the book of John that I always go back to when I think about grace and Jesus and just how the gospel just displays the grace of Jesus. It's John chapter 8, starting at verse 1. So if you want to go there with me, John chapter 8, starting uh, at verse 1, it's on page 919. If you're in one of our pew Bibles, uh, (coughs) I'll just, uh, as we go there, I, I tend to always kind of preface this story by just asking this question and telling a story of my own that maybe some of you have heard before. I'm not sure, to be honest, but I think so. Have you ever been caught? Like, just fully, like, busted, caught, like there was an eyewitness that just saw you and you were just kind of, you're busted. Have you ever been caught? You remember the, the guilt that kind of just overcomes you in that moment as you have been caught? Uh, I remember, and some of you might remember this story, uh, I was in third grade. My most memorable being caught moment was in third grade for me. Uh, I was in Mrs. Cyrus's third grade class, and there are a couple things that I remember about Miss Cyrus. Miss Cyrus loved tigers. Her classroom was just decked out in tiger stuff, and Miss Cyrus was all about that positive reinforcement. You do something good, you get a Longhorn buck. I was at the Payson Elementary Longhorns. That's what I was, and so I get a Longhorn buck, and so... Um, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of longhorn bucks. You can, uh, take that for what it's worth. Uh, I didn't have a lot of longhorn bucks, but I wanted a lot of longhorn bucks. And so, uh, I, there was, I had my eye on the prize. I knew that big thing that I wanted to get with my longhorn bucks. And it kind of hit me one day. I'm not going to get that many longhorn bucks. So I came up with this plan. This plan to get the longhorn bucks that I needed. And so I, I knew that if I was going to get them, I needed to take them. And so uh, I came up with this plan to steal the Longhorn Bucks out of my teacher's desk. I knew which drawer she kept them in. I knew everything about this. So I came up with this plan. We're going to go to recess. I'm going to get in the back of the line. As they go, I'm just going to conveniently forget something, turn around, go to the desk, get the cash, put it in, the, put it in my desk, and then just go back out to recess and just yeah, wait for a couple of weeks and then say, look at all these Longhorn books I have. Can I have that? Like she wasn't going to notice, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure I didn't give you all those Longhorn books. But uh, I just remember conveniently, uh, I, the first half of this whole caper was a real success. Uh, I got into the classroom, opened the drawer, I got the Longhorn books. I got all the Longhorn Bucks, not just the ones that I needed. I got all the Longhorn Bucks. Uh, <laughs> and I started walking back to my desk, and uh, I hear the door open. And in walks Mrs. Cyrus, my teacher. And I was caught in that moment. And I just remember you know, trying to talk my way out of it and not working because 
it's third grade me, and I probably wasn't that great. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, so I, I just remember I was, I was caught, uh, and I just remember the, the overwhelming guilt that came over me. Uh, and I don't know if it was the guilt or the embarrassment. I ended up switching schools after that. <laughs> like, it, was, it was that bad. Uh, and so uh, I, I just want you to think about this. Have you ever been caught? I want you just to think about the guilt that you have in this moment of being caught. And then we're going to read this story uh, in John chapter 8. And I just want you in this moment to just remember and just kind of feel all over again this guilt of, uh, maybe not feel it, but that's kind of a weird place to send you, right? But just to kind of remember the guilt that is, that is there in your past. And so, all right, John chapter 8, uh, starting at verse 1. And actually, before we even get there, there's a note in my Bible, probably in your Bibles as well, that says this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to 8.11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, John 21, Luke 21, or Luke 24. Uh, I just want to just, why am I preaching out of a passage that isn't in the early manuscripts? That can be a question people would ask, and I would just say this. They're not in the earliest manuscripts. They're in 4th century manuscripts. They're in 8th century manuscripts. They are in different places in some of the Gospels. Uh, like it says here, they're in Luke 21. Uh, like it's a whole other book, right? They're in Luke. This passage is in Luke in some, uh, in some manuscripts. In like 5th, 6th century manuscripts, there's just a blank space there. Like people knew about it, but just kind of left it out. It's just, there's, there is a, this is an interesting passage where you're talking about historically the placement that has been in the manuscripts. But one thing that you cannot doubt is its authenticity. No one, no one doubts that this is a story from the life of Jesus, that it is an authentic story. No matter where you find it in the Gospels or if it's in the manuscript, it might have been more of, a, more of an oral thing until someone placed it in here. Uh, but this is undoubtedly a story of Jesus. Right? We can take it with authority. It is in our Bibles for a reason. Uh, and so just... Maybe if one of you is out there questioning, there you go. So, uh, so John chapter 8, <coughs> excuse me, starting at verse 1, uh, <coughs> I guess it's technically 753. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. I just want to just stop right there. We're going to take pauses as we go through this story. Stop right there. Jesus is in the temple, and this woman is brought to Jesus in the temple after having been caught in the act of adultery. Now, this means a couple different things, right? First of all, she was caught in the act, so scholars tell us that she was likely still uh, not clothed. Uh, she might have still been in a sheet or a blanket, but there's chances are they brought her straight from the act. Uh, they, they got her and pulled her right into the temple. You can just kind of just feel with me the embarrassment and the guilt of this woman who is being brought to Jesus. I, I just want you to try and put yourself in this place where you are brought into the temple guilty to face Jesus. Uh, this is where this woman is at. And this, she's, she's brought to the uh, temple. She's accused. She's guilty. Uh, and we keep reading, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap 
in order to have a basis for accusing him. I just want to just stop right here. Interesting note here. Things have kind of switched on us. This woman was brought in, accused, guilty, brought to Jesus. But if you notice in this moment, she is no longer the one that's on trial. Jesus is the one on trial. These Pharisees bring her in. This woman was caught in adultery. The law tells us that we used to stone her. What do you say? And I love this qualifying statement here in verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees are constantly trying to trap Jesus into saying something or doing something that they can get him for. And so this is another one of these situations where they're just trying to, to come in and they're trying to, to put him against Moses in this point. See, Jesus uh, would have known this law. It's Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Jesus would have known this. It's in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Jesus also would have known that at this point, in this culture, stoning is not actually legal anymore. Romans kind of wink at it for, for Christians, ironically. Uh, but this is what happens. They kind of give it a wink and a nod, but Jesus knows this is not a legal thing at this point. And there's this, there's this woman standing here who is thinking, I, I, could, I could die soon. I, I, according to the law, I could, I could die. And you can just imagine the thoughts that are running through her head. But Jesus responds in verse 7. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I love Jesus' response here. Chooses silence over words. Just lets, it, lets the moment hang for a second. Can you imagine this? this, this the, just imagine kind of the... The anger and the commotion coming into the temple. This woman is caught in adultery. They bring her in. They're, they're ready to kill her. They're ready to stone her. They ask Jesus this question. And Jesus just kind of takes a moment of silence. Bends down. Writes with his finger in the ground. And then the silence is broken. Jesus responds. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus' response is not a, uh, I disagree with Moses or I agree with Moses. It is a, let any one of you who is without sin, you throw the first stone. And then he once again goes down and, and writes in the sand. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't take the bait that the Pharisees are kind of leaving out here. Now, everyone wants to know, what is Jesus writing in the sand? Right? What, is, what is Jesus writing? There's all sorts of speculation about what Jesus is writing. Uh, Jesus, there's people, I've heard people in sermons say that Jesus was writing down the sins of every, every person in that room. I just, I can't, I don't buy it. <laughs> I don't because if that, if that was it, I think it'd be there. Uh, the thing we have here is that the, the, this writer doesn't feel like it's necessary to tell us what Jesus is writing in the sand, only the fact that he is writing in the sand, twice. Now, why? Why? why, the, why what is the point in this? What is, what is the point in talking about Jesus just kneeling and, 
and writing. I just, I, I, well, I think really what the author is, is kind of taking us back to here is, is something deeper than this. I mentioned earlier they were trying to catch, kind of put Jesus in a, in a Jesus versus Moses kind of moment. And try and catch him. And, if you don't, and they're basically saying, if you don't agree with us, maybe we should just stone you too. Jesus says, if you haven't sinned, you throw the first stone. And he kneels down again and he writes with his finger in the sand. And personally, I think for the author here to say this twice is a big deal. Why is he telling us and reminding us that Jesus is bending down and writing in the sand? And personally, I, I think it goes back to here. I think you go back all the way to Exodus chapter 31, uh, verse 18. Moses uh, is talking with God. He's clarifying all of the Ten Commandments with God. God is giving him the Ten Commandments. And you get to uh, Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, and here's what it said. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Think about this. We have the law that these Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus in. What is, where did that law come from? That law was written by the finger of God. And so we have Jesus, who is, as we've said the last few weeks, God, being questioned on this law. And, and the author finds it important for us to tell this that he bent down and he wrote with his finger in the sand twice. It's almost as if This author is trying to say they were trying to pit him against Moses, but here we have the author of the law that they're trying to pit him against Moses with, minus the stoning part, right? Don't commit adultery is one of the Ten Commandments. And here we have Jesus. He's he's the author of this law. This law they're trying to trap him in is the same one that he wrote in Exodus chapter 31 with his finger. And so here we have these Pharisees trying to trap Jesus in this, saying, this is the law, you know, if someone's caught, if a man is caught with a neighbor's wife, uh, both him and, both the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death. They bring these, well, they didn't bring these people, they brought her to Jesus. They said, we've just caught her in adultery, the law tells us we could stone her, what should we do? Jesus writes in the sand, you who have not sinned, you throw the first stone, and then writes in the sand, Again, this is if this law that you're trying to trap me in, yeah, I wrote that. I made that. Moses was the delivery guy. That was me. You can just see this, this kind of, this way that Jesus is answering here. Not only will I not be, will I not be trapped by you, I am the author of this law. Not only am I the author of this law, I'm the author of this girl's life. And this is what we're going to do. Now, up until now, we haven't heard any more from this girl. All we know is that she was brought to Jesus in the temple, accused, probably guilty of adultery. She's brought there. And then Jesus is put on trial. But you can just, just don't lose track of what this girl is thinking at this point. She's being accused of something that could, she could die for. People are trying to get Jesus to say, to kind of like give the thumbs up, like, yeah, that is what the law says, go for it. Jesus refuses. But we still have this girl standing in the temple, embarrassed, guilty, ashamed probably, 
This is just where we're at. At this point, everyone is, is carrying stones. Everyone that brings this woman in is probably already carrying the stone that they were anticipating using later on in this, in this time. And we keep reading here. We keep reading in verse 9. <clears throat> at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, can you imagine just... Again, just stop and put yourself in this girl's shoes. She's brought to the temple, guilty, not wearing much, just ashamed. They're wanting to kill her. Jesus writes in the sand, says, you who haven't sinned, you throw the first stone. Writes in the sand again. And all of a sudden, this girl, bracing for stones, just hears the stones drop. Here's footsteps of these men walking away. And all of a sudden, it's just her and Jesus standing in this temple. He keeps going. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, a couple of things strike me here. What we're talking about here and what we're getting an image of here is the grace of God. We're getting an image of grace here. That, I mean, grace is, is defined. Grace, unmerited favor from God. This is what she's getting. She did not get what she deserved this day. She gets grace. She's brought to Jesus. Jesus sees her in her sin and he shows Grace. Now, there's a, there's a quote from uh, Fred Sanders about grace. He says this, Grace means free forgiveness, in which we receive from God the favor that we do not deserve and are guilty of having violated. But grace also means God's empowering us and drawing us to become more Christ-like, freely giving us the help and power we also do not deserve and are also guilty of having violated. Jesus offers this woman grace, forgiveness. He, he speaks grace to this woman. Is, is there no one condemning you? No, there's no one. Neither do I condemn you. But he doesn't leave it there either. He says, go and sin no more. It's like in John chapter 1, we have, uh, you know, in the Word was the beginning, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Everything that was made has been made. Verse 14 the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus comes, verse 14, and says he is full of grace and truth. Jesus has both of these aspects in his life, full of grace, full of truth. I don't think there is a better situation in Scripture to talk about Jesus being full of grace and truth than this one matter right here. So Jesus shows this woman grace but refuses to just leave her and let her just go, go and sin no more. He recognizes that what this woman was brought in here for is a sin. He's not saying you're, you're innocent. He's saying you're forgiven. Now go and don't do it anymore. Right? There is a grace here that Jesus shows this woman, but he still says go and sin no more. You know, every, every sermon that I've heard on this passage 
including my own probably, ends in one of two ways. We talk about putting ourselves in the place of the woman, which is a great sermon, by the way, uh, to say no matter what you've got going on in your life, no matter what sin you have in your life, this grace of God is available to you at all times. Amen. Amen to this sermon. The grace of God is available to you. You come to God in your sin and there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. The other way we take this is we, we put ourselves in the shoes of the people on, and I just picture them in a circle surrounding this woman with rocks. And we talk about how a lot of times we view other people and we see them in our sin and we're ready to throw rocks, but we need to hear these words of Jesus. You who haven't sinned, you throw the first stone And we're kind of challenged to just drop our rocks. Be grace-filled people who who don't, you know, we're going to, we see our own sin, and so we can't condemn anybody else in their own sin, so we drop our rocks and we walk away. This morning I want to go a little different direction with it, because I think in our uh, journey to grow and be more Christ-like, I think it's appropriate to put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus here. Someone is brought in, and the way Jesus responds is something that I want us to learn from this morning. Jesus' response is not condemnation, it is compassion and grace. If there's something that I know from reading books and, and studies for the last five years, ten years, the church, not just our church, but the church, Big C Church, is known more for our condemnation than our compassion. And I want you to see this contrast that when someone is brought to Jesus, he literally says, there's no, I'm not condemning you. He shows compassion. He shows grace in this moment to this person who is, who is just, just fresh out of a life of sin, like literally fresh out of this sinful, this sinful way. And there's grace, there's compassion, but there's also truth. Go and sin no more. I think if we're going to be the people, if we're going to be like Jesus, if we are going to truly be Christ-like, I think this needs to be our response. I think as people come to us in their lives, life is messy, and people are going to come to us, especially as we're going out. If, if the last four weeks have meant anything, it means that we are going out with the gospel. And we are going out looking different than the world does because of the gospel. Now because of this, people are going to come to you and just kind of dig in. Why is this different for you? Why, how, how are you living like this? I don't understand. What do you think about this? They're going to come to you. And if our response out of the gospel is condemnation, we're doing it wrong. Our response out of the gospel as people come to us in their sin needs to be one of grace and truth. Like, I I am not condemning you for what you are doing, but you know this is wrong. I love you. I, I love you. I'm not condemning you. I'm not getting on you for this, but things need to change a little bit. We need to be able to speak the truth and love to these people who come to us and are not living the way that God wants them to live. Now, uh, in the video this week in our small group, they say our words can never be stronger than our relationship. 
And I want you to think about that for a second. Our words that we speak can never be stronger than our relationship. Here's what I mean by that. If I have just met you and you come to me, well, let's pretend I'm not a pastor for a second because I have some more liberties, maybe. If you come to me and you say, this is what I'm struggling with, I meet you at a coffee shop and you're talking about all this stuff that you're doing and I, I haven't built a relationship with you. Am I able to lead with, bro, you know this is wrong. No. Am I able to lead with, can I pray with you about that? Can I, can I walk with you as you kind of do this? Maybe the time is not on in day one, moment one, to just go all in with the truth piece. There's got to be grace first. Now, Jesus didn't say, Jesus, this woman didn't come, and Jesus didn't say, you know, you're a sinner, but I'm not condemning you. He says, there's no condemnation, now go and don't sin anymore. Do you see the the pairing here? We need to be people who are full of grace and truth. That as we go out and we share the gospel, as we go out and we bring the gospel to the world, we take the gospel out of the building into the world, we need to be people who are full of grace and truth. Another thing they say in the video, truth without grace is fundamentalism. Grace without truth is sentimentality. We need to be full of both. People of grace and truth. In our search to be Christ-like, in our quest, our, <laughs> our, our mission to be more Christ-like each and every day, to mature into the image of Christ, we need people who are filled just as Jesus was with grace and truth. Amen. Question for you. What does that look like for you this week? What does it look like for you to respond in grace and truth? What does it look like to respond to your friends, your family, your coworkers, in grace and truth this week? Just, just a reminder, you have been shown the grace of God. You are forgiven if you choose to accept it. This gospel is what saves us. That, that part is, is not going away. But as we go out and we share this gospel, we have to be people who are full of grace and truth. Can't just be people of grace who just say, I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you. you keep doing that, but I, I'm just still going to say, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, that we have to speak truth, but we have to lead with grace. How can you do that this week? Do you see yourself as too far on either side of that spectrum? Are you someone who is just too full of truth and not enough grace? Are you someone that is just fully grace and not enough truth? How can we, how can we work our way to the middle to be people who are just like Jesus, full of grace and truth? That's my prayer for you this week, that you, you find where you are and you see where Jesus is and you go for him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for the grace that you show each and every one of us. Thank you so much for the truth that you show each and every one of us. God, you are, you are not shy in either way. You, you, are, you, are, 
You are very loud with your grace, but you are also very loud with your truth, God. I just pray that we would be people who are full of both, full of grace, full of truth. God, help us this week as we go in our conversations. Would we, would we fill our conversations with both of these things? Would there be plenty of grace and plenty of truth in what we do, God? Would we, would we know the balance and would we seek you to find that balance? God, you are our example of what it means to be full of grace and truth. May we emulate you and follow you this week. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Let me pray this blessing over you as we go. May our God, full of grace and full of truth, may he empower you to go this week. May he remind you which side you, you fall most on, grace or truth, and would he, would he lead you towards the middle ground, would he lead you towards his son Jesus. Would you go this week and be empowered by the Spirit? Would you make a difference wherever you may find yourself? Go in the peace of God, in the name of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning.